Welcome. You're listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Rena Glazer. Today's guest is Hayes Hunt from Cozen O'Connor. Hayes spoke to us from Philadelphia, where he is based. We discussed his career, the firm's pro bono program, and some pro bono matters that have been particularly meaningful to him. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Hayes. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Rena. Let's jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, where you went to school? Sure, sure. I guess there. Um, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and I always say it's a good place to grow up. And then my mother and I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina when I was in high school. And I stayed in Charlotte and went to school at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And then I went to Temple Law School in Philadelphia. I guess I was, what, 22, 21 years old. I've been in Philadelphia ever since. That's amazing. Well, we love the city of brotherly love. That's actually a big chunk of my family is from there. And I guess everyone in North Carolina is happy this week on the heels of the big national championship for, for the Absolutely. basketball team. Basketball so is, is everything for many people in North Carolina. Yep. So many congratulations. So you went to law school at Temple, and how did you decide to become a lawyer? Is there a story there? Yeah, like an origin story. It's funny uh, you said that because I was adopted. So going back to Toledo, there's a picture of me as a very as, as a toddler or a small infant sitting on counsel's table in a Toledo Lucas County courtroom being adopted. So I like to think that whatever that experience was at a very young age, I decided I was going to continue to to stay in a courtroom, and I, I kind of stuck with it. And to this day, I still, if I'm trying a jury, I'll, I tend to lean or sit on the on counsel's table if I'm talking to a witness or a jury. Um, so that's kind of funny. I like to say that, but in some sense, I've I've always wanted to be a lawyer, and I've I've just never changed my mind about that. I applied to one college, one law school, one job. Uh, I've kind of always been very clear about being a lawyer, and it's really I've always defined myself as as wanting to get there and temple, and my experiences were to become a lawyer and, and remain one and to, to what that meant to me. But um, the other thing is when I think about you know, wanting to be a lawyer, I guess the other, maybe the other option was to be a, a garbage person because they were just too cool hanging out beside <laughs> of garbage trucks as a child. So that was pretty much, I, I got to be honest, it's not just only a lawyer, even though I really haven't changed my mind. I did consider a garbage person because, you know, the idea of the freedom of, of riding on the back of a truck just seemed way too cool to me. So, and that's, that's full disclosure. Sure. That's amazing. Well, thank you for sharing. And that's an incredible <laughs> origin story. And I hope somewhere you have a collage with, with sort of that picture from your, from your early years and then sort of I the grown-up you. Got that in some old, fat, you know, yep. 1970s, 80s, you know, book that's got the plastic yep. over it. Yeah. You know. That's amazing. Titles underneath all those things, you know, yep. big binders of picture books. Yep, that's great. So let's flash forward a little. How did you get to Cozen O'Connor? Well, I guess getting to Cozen O'Connor was was where I, I started after Temple. Uh, and again, I was kind of, I guess I'm, now that I'm thinking about it out loud with you, Rena, I'm pretty singularly focused about things I want to do. I wanted to be a trial lawyer, so I, I only applied to one law school. Temple was ranked number one, so I went there. And... And in, in, in keeping with that, I wanted to be a trial lawyer, and there was pretty much two jobs you wanted in Philadelphia. 
in the 90s, which was to be a district attorney or be a, a defender uh, in Philadelphia. And I applied to the Defender Association of Philadelphia again. I applied to one job and fortunately I got it. Um, and I was a public defender in Philadelphia for right around three years and got jury trial experience and at that point, I was contacted by a friend about Cousin O'Connor. I had, I, there was no headhunting or applying for jobs or anything like that. They, I guess Cousin had heard about me, uh, and the firm had heard about the work I was doing, and uh, they said, would you like to come in and talk to us about a position at, at Cousin O'Connor? And I did. And it really was a financial decision, and I, I liked the people at the firm. And I took the job and, and was able to very quickly learn civil practice and civil litigation and take some of the skills that I had learned as a as a public defender in the courtroom and with clients, you know, to the private side. And, and many of those reasons were one is I, I just thoroughly enjoyed everyone and, and respected the people I met at Cousin O'Connor, but also it was really a financial decision in the end. We've heard that and before. Been, and and yeah. I've been here for 17 years, so we've heard that before from from people who were uh, practicing as defenders and and jump to law firms and and what the considerations were. And so it's interesting to hear your story and how sort of directed and focused you've been. It it's I think unique. Many people are just very open-minded, and they have a general sense of what they want to do. And so <laughs> it's, no, it's amazing sort of knowing you and hearing your determined focus. It's not a surprise, but. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I kind of do that same thing for, for clients as well. So, it's, yeah. Your nature. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, probably <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so for people who aren't super familiar with the firm, could you just give us a general overview? Sure. Um, Cousin O'Connor has over 600 lawyers. I believe it. We're up to 24 offices all over the country and the United uh, Kingdom. London, as well as Toronto. And we have a multidisciplinary practice. We do business, M&A work, you know, pretty much a large scale, you know, AmLaw 100 law firm that does everything. The kind of origin stories of the firm was really built in trial and litigation work. Uh, Steve Cozen and Pat O'Connor were renowned trial lawyers in Philadelphia and really built a firm over the last number of decades into what it is now, which is, a, you know, a large diverse law firm that's capable of really handling client matters with regard to anything. So that's who we are as a firm. That's helpful for us all to know. At, at some point, you became the chair of the firm's pro bono committee. So how did that come about? <laughs> I don't know exactly how that came about now that I think about it. I, I think I was doing some larger firm initiative work for professional development and kind of working on trial programs and and if I'm kind of guessing, some of the firm leadership, Michael Heller, Vince McGinnis, and Ted Decker, you know, approached me about kind of shaping a robust pro bono committee, which existed and which was strong. It was just a matter of, I think it was really to give me an opportunity to lead the firm in the initiative at a, a relatively young age. And I appreciated the confidence and, and that what I would say a, another level of, of kind of developing as a as a lawyer and as a professional and as, as being part of the firm. So I think that was a great opportunity. And I enjoyed it and still do serve on the committee. And we have a full-time pro bono director now, which is great, Melinda DeLeal, and she's doing fantastic work. And, and the, the firm leadership, you know, Michael, Vince, and Ted have really invested in pro bono work by bringing Melinda on. 
and really putting a lot of uh, not only just saying pro bono is important, but also you know funding it and making sure that we have a healthy and robust pro bono program. Yeah, it's definitely an exciting time for pro bono at the firm. A lot of opportunity and some changes and, and a lot of excitement. What do you see as the firm's greatest challenges with pro bono? What either do you struggle with or what keeps you up at night? What, what sort of obstacles do you face? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, from my experience and, and probably Melinda, she's probably the one to best ask because she's doing, doing this full time. But really from my experience is, is making sure that people are doing meaningful work. It's not just an hour of pro bono work that lawyers are using. This is kind of a broader uh, comment on pro bono practices in general, not specifically with regard to our firm. But, you know, you want somebody to be doing work that they care about and that's meaningful to them. And I would say that's a quality, a quality pro bono after, uh, you know, hour from from lawyers is really the best thing you could hope for and, and want to get. Um, and also really anticipating the legal needs of the indigent before there is a crisis. And a lot of that is, is coming to PBI, listening to, to trends and, and figuring out really where where people are going to need significant services and, and as a large law firm and as a national law firm to make sure that we are part of that conversation and considering ways where we can use our time and our energy and our intellect and lawyers to, to help people. I mean, I would give examples when I was at the PBI many years ago that I heard about veteran services and veterans homelessness and needs and brought that back to the firm, created COVID, and really made it made a point of dealing with VA benefits and, and really getting involved because it was something that was meaningful to us, but we also were able to see the future trend of that need. And so we were able to get 36 lawyers certified to do VA benefits work, and we really put our shoulders into it. And, and other examples of that are expungement clinics. You know, when you live in a city like Philadelphia, which has a large population that's you know in poverty there there's certain expungement clinics to to erase misdemeanor or, or maybe arrest records that uh, harm or could uh, prevent many people from getting jobs uh, we contributed to that we're part of a clinic with the expungement clinics and then also you know when you have cities that have a lot of tangled title issues and we're working with Chubb and in-house counsel on a, a wonderful partnership to make sure that people that are in property or are trying to understand, you know, their title issues and concerns, and, and that's a that's a very important legal need, especially in a city that's gentrifying and expanding, and people are trying to sell and be involved in, in really using the property and considerations of being able to to be a little more flexible with with assets that they have, you know, I mean, certain assets or just figuring out whether or not they're entitled to be in the house that, you know, they've been in for 40 or 50 years. And so those are the kinds of things that I wouldn't say keep me up at night because I know Melinda and our firm are going to be fine, but they're, they're things that I want or at least consider to make sure we're, we're always involved at an early point in time and not, not when it's too late or when it's already become a, a huge issue and, and certain things could have been resolved early. Or we, we could be contribute to, I would say, the, the knowledge, the understanding, and the legal work, which would help others uh, learn uh, how to handle these situations and, and what I would consider large needs of poor populations. I really like this idea of being proactive and getting in sort of 
early because I feel like so much of our work these days is super reactive <laughs> given what's going on in the world. And I think the pro bono and access to justice community feels a little under siege. So it's nice to think about being strategic, to sort of anticipate problems and to plan, to be to be thoughtful on that front. Can I follow up on a couple things you, you mentioned? Because I think people are interested in hearing a little bit more before we switch gears. Sure. Could you tell us a little bit more about the COVETs and uh, the program and the type of work you do? This is the Veterans Initiative you mentioned. Yeah, what we really wanted to do was say, look, we when there are needs uh, of veterans, let's Let's create a large umbrella of, of COVID because we were doing a lot of different pro bono work for a lot of different veterans. We were working with the Homeless Advocacy Project and Michael Taub in Philadelphia. And you know, we realized that there were, as part of going to the clinics and going to the, the homeless center with Michael, that there were a lot of veterans there that could receive benefits and, 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 and really help them. We're talking about medical benefits and benefits that would provide them income for housing. And Dan Lucaro, Chris Boyle, a lot of uh, wonderful lawyers at our firm really took that initiative, and it's been so meaningful to them. And we have uh, received incredible results for a lot of our pro bono clients. And really, you're talking about changing somebody from being homeless to getting their medical needs, to getting psychological services, to getting income, and getting housing. That's a meaningful hour, I can tell you. Those are meaningful hours that are well spent. And, and frankly, from a professional and personal satisfaction, the lawyers that we've been involved with, with helping veterans, couldn't feel more fulfilled. And that's, that's just one example. And, and what, so what we've done is, is kind of tried to say, look, if you're doing veterans work, put it under COVID and let's talk and let's make sure we're, we're identifying those broader needs, including dealing with the VA administration and whatever else it may be. And so we've been able to do a lot of that work, frankly, when we went to the PBI annual meeting and we heard that it was going to be a, a big issue and people needed help. So that was our response. Great. And thank you for the plug. That was not planned. So thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> you know, I'm, a, I'm my first time at the rodeo. Um, but... <laughs> So you, right. the, you talked a little yeah. bit about, you know, we talked about veterans. We talked about Tangle Title, which is a really well-known project and need in Philadelphia. You've, you've been in Philly for a long time since you rolled in to go to law school. How would you describe the pro bono and access to justice landscape in the city? Well, it's, it's interesting you said that because what I realized going to the annual meeting and, and hearing from other cities is that at one level, Philadelphia has an incredibly strong, strong legal community that is devoted to pro bono work. And the nonprofits that exist, like Philly VIP, Community Legal Services, the Senior Law Center, and I don't, I'm missing hundreds of people that I want, wish I could to acknowledge that do work, but Philadelphia really has a lot of people devoted to these issues. And private law firms like Cozen O'Connor and many others we, we are doing the work. And what I realize is that in many other places, you know, there's just a big gap. And I don't know if that's just a historical, I've been here for almost 25 years, but Philadelphia from, as, a, as a model is a community and, and there's a civic pride in taking on difficult legal matters from basically as Philadelphia lawyers and, and, and the people that are doing nonprofit work in the DA's office 
and the Defenders Association and across the board do very, very good work. So in some sense, as a community, I think it's a very healthy and in, in some ways a, a strong community that's dedicated to helping and resolving, help and maybe not resolving, but certainly helping and and again, putting their shoulder into serving our community. And there's a bit of civic pride from lawyers and, and our law firms, especially at Cousin O'Connor and many others, that we're going to help. And the judiciary contacts us. The judiciary identifies a problem. And as a group of lawyers and groups of law firms and groups of, of nonprofit entities that are providing legal services, there is a lot of people that act and, and do better for for the poor and from a perspective of someone that's been here for a very long time i'm very proud of that from philadelphia and and the lawyers that are in our in our community yeah a lot to be proud of there let's shift gears could you could you tell us about tyrone jones i can i could probably talk to you about tyrone jones for for the next uh 12 hours but uh, tyrone jones I had the privilege of representing because I was contacted by um, Marissa Bluestein and Neelam Sanjeev and, and Richard Glazer of the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. And they called and said, would you be interested in taking an innocence case? And our firm responded, uh, as we do so many times, and said yes. And what happened was, while we were fighting for substantial and significant issues with regard to to Tyrone's conviction, Miller versus Alabama came down and essentially said that his he had an illegal sentence, which was life without parole in Pennsylvania for for a conviction that occurred in the 70s. And so at that point, we really took two parallel routes, which is one to continue fighting for his innocence, which we we've never we we'll, we will never give up on, and we're still working on some parts of that, but. The other was to say, you know, he needs to be released. And so talk about anticipating an event horizon. The minute Miller came down, we decided to to start working on what we expected to be and ultimately happened, which was that it would be found to be retroactive and applied to Tyrone. So there was a lot. We started building out a reentry plan, a mitigation package, and really contacting the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, which was very open-minded in many senses about Tyrone's case, even before there was a legal door that opened to have him paroled. So at the time that Montgomery versus Louisiana came down, I guess it's almost a year ago, I guess late January of 2016, within 24 hours, we were already in motion with the district attorney saying, hey, we have the plan, we have the people, we have that all of the, we have all the criteria under Miller and it's retroactive, time to let Tyrone Jones out of custody. Now, Tyrone Jones was 16 years old in 1973, and he's a six-year-old man now. And I can't even tell you what a remarkable person he was, what a privilege it was to represent him, and, and we continue to represent him. So we really, when I talked about in, you know, kind of anticipating the future trend, we were really on the edge of that nationally of trying to understand exactly what the legal remedies would be for Tyrone as a juvenile life without parole petitioner. And ultimately, he was one of the first individuals released from custody in the United States. 
And that was a, you know, a very special day for me personally. It was a special day for the firm. He came to Cozen O'Connor. I, you know, I probably get a little choked up thinking about it, but I asked Tyrone what he wanted to do when we picked him up and the Innocence Project and Neelam and all the people that worked on his case and his sisters were there. And we picked him up about three hours north of here. And he reminded me that he said, Hayes, you know, you promised one day you would walk me out of here. And I said, well, Tyrone, I tend to keep my promises, but, you know, I always teach students, don't make promises that you can't keep. It was really a remarkable day. And I said, where do you want to go? I mean, you got to understand, Tyrone is, had never seen the ocean. He had never driven a car. I mean, he was a 16-year-old boy. And he was a remarkable man who had done everything in custody. He had learned, he has electrical license. He has a plumbing license. He has every degree, every certificate you could have ever asked for. And he said, I want to thank the people that helped me. I want to go to Cozen O'Connor and go to the law firm. And that's what we did. So before, before he got his full welcome home with the family, the family was in Philadelphia at our law firm waiting for him. And to say there was a lot of tears shed would be an understatement. And everybody at Cousin O'Connor came out and there was a lot of hugs and really to let him know that, and his sisters were there, they had cooked all kinds of food. They didn't believe me, they did not want catering. They were gonna feed their brother. <laughs> it was just a, a beautiful day for him as an innocent man, but also somebody that just got legal relief and never really gave up hope. And I'll, I'll never forget it. Talk about the uh, highlight of professional and personal satisfaction. I can say that that was, was up there after, you know, working on the case for over six years with the Innocence Project to see Tyrone, a free man in some sense, and to watch him go through that process the entire day. What do you think about him helped him cultivate and maintain hope over all those decades? When I think about this, I remember at his resentencing, I sat down with his sisters and I said, you know, the reason we're here is because the Pennsylvania Innocence Project and Marissa and Neelam and Richard said yes to your brother's letter. And that's why we're here today. Because Tyrone, when he heard that Pennsylvania was opening up an Innocence Project, wrote a letter. And there was a strength of character that is unmatched in Tyrone. He has his religion. And frankly, he went about his business every day committed to improving himself. So if they said, we're going to have this class, he would take it. And he never got angry. And he never lost hope. And he always knew he was innocent. And, you know, there, there's, there's something to be said for that, how remarkable the human spirit can be. And so I think it's, and, and frankly, you know what the biggest part of that was? And I shame on me for, for not saying it first, but his sisters never gave up on him. His family never gave up on him. They, they came, his, his sisters would drive from North Carolina through the night to go see him and then drive back on a Sunday through the night. I mean, these are beautiful women who absolutely would not leave their brother's side and they never gave up on him. And so he never had to give up. And that family and that love, I think, was without question and no doubt in my mind meant everything to him and, and still does. It's really inspiring. And there's so many heroes in this story. It's thank you for sharing. Do you have any advice or? Yeah, there's a lot, I want to hear all these stories. <laughs> as well as two. It's either the Pennsylvania Innocence Project yeah. or Tyrone and, Jones. And his family. Heroes, and for sure. For sure. And yeah. um, do you have any sort of words of advice or guidance or wisdom for people who may be interested in taking on uh, and helping these juvenile lifers? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, don't be concerned that it's, it might be in a criminal practice that you're unfamiliar with. There are so many resources out there. Um, I know 
the materials in the Tyrone Jones case because Tyrone immediately wanted to help others. You know, one of those moments you take pause, right? There's all these cases in the law that we have their names, Marbury versus Madison or, you know, Roe v. Wade and, and all these incredible you know, Brown v. Board. I mean, you can go on and on of, of these names of Supreme Court cases. But Tyrone said to me once, he said, I, I want to check in. I, I'd like to know how Montgomery is doing. I said, what? Who? And he goes, Henry Montgomery, the Montgomery who's in Louisiana. I mean, that's who he is. I said, oh, right. Henry Montgomery, who I don't represent, is a 70-year-old man in Louisiana and to our conversation earlier, which is my understanding that he has not been resentenced by any court in Louisiana. And so he you know, got that relief and is still sitting in Louisiana with an illegal sentence, according to the Supreme Court, but no one's done anything about it. And the advice is that there are those people sitting out there that, that really need legal help and really just need somebody to, to be responsive to them and for that consideration. And the advice is you're going to get a new sentence. You're going to go to court and the work's been done. Many, many, you know, nonprofits have done the work. Many law firms have done the work like us. And we will share that information and people will talk and there'll be dialogue because that's really part of what the PBI really contributes to, which is dialogue across the nation between public and private in-house counsel and, and to make sure that everyone is going to be secure in the representation. So don't be concerned that it sounds like criminal law. You're, you're used to dealing with mergers and acquisitions. You're not used to going to court or it sounds like it's too far afield from you. There are a lot of people that could use your help. And frankly, there are a lot of people that will help you with that representation. So, so my advice would be to, you know, if you're reluctant or if you're considering it, don't be afraid and, and move forward and, and say yes. And most firms have, to be honest with you. And, I, and the, the Jones materials are, I believe, on the PBI website now. And there's a lot of people out there willing to help, including Cousin O'Connor. Yeah, absolutely. If people are interested, just contact us and we can hook you up with those materials. No problem. So, hey, while we're on the advice front, <laughs> you've spent a lot of time teaching, mentoring, and training the next generation of trial lawyers at Temple, at the firm. What advice do you have for law students and lawyers who are just starting their careers? Generally? Generally. <laughs> yeah. Or specifically, but yeah. The biggest choice you can make is really determining what your, your debt load is coming out of law school. And if you have the financial ability to, as a younger lawyer, join the private sector or join the public sector, then you, I don't let, I would say, salary be the only driving factor. And if you want to get into the community and, and do nonprofit work and can afford to do it, then I would recommend it because it's a great place to be a young lawyer. Um, whether and, and at least in my experience as it, in the DA's office or at the Philadelphia Defender's office, there are great lawyers there that really mentor and make sure that you learn a lot. And then in the private sector, if you're going to a large law firm like Cozen O'Connor or any others, then get out there and get a pro bono case early and use pro bono work to develop internal relationships with other partners and walk into their office and say, I'd like to handle uh, this pro bono matter. I don't have the skills or expertise yet. Would you partner with me or will you, will you help me through some of these issues? 
And, and nine times out of the 10, the answer is going to be yes. And so, you know, those are the things that you're going to get the client contact. You're not going to write a memo and not meet a client or frankly, be involved in very high level strategic decision making in some of these pro bono cases, if it's that kind of case, if, it, if you need to team of lawyers to it. But you're going to learn a lot by taking a pro bono case and developing your own professional skills early. So whether or not you enter the public sector and do it for a living or you enter the private sector, whatever you do as a young lawyer, don't hesitate to take a pro bono case. And if there's the firm, every firm that I've ever talked to will support you in that. Certainly the, the, the large law firms will say yes to you and be interested in, in, in what you're doing. And, and if you think about it as a young lawyer, it's the first time you're going to be able to make some choices about what work you want to do as opposed to what somebody else is telling you to do. So if you're interested in Wills for Heroes, if you're interested in entangled title or expungement or whatever it is, whatever it might be, then get out there and figure out where where the needs are and take a case. And that's that's something I would say as a young lawyer you you should be interested in doing. And and you know, be to be a what I would say a great lawyer, you need to engage with the community you practice in, the community that you represent businesses in, the community that is is working together. And that has to include pro bono work. And and frankly, every corporation I've ever represented, in-house counsel to the CEO's office, they care about contributing back to the community. And don't, and don't think it's just joining a law firm. And it there is the business of law, but the business of law includes being very much a part of the community. At least that's what I've learned at Cozen O'Connor. That's a great lesson and great advice. Let's end with this. Who's your pro bono role model and why? I would say my, my pro bono role model came from law school, which was Professor Lou Natoli. He was, he was doing pro bono work. He was very involved in criminal defense and at the Capitol Habeas Unit. And when I was a third-year law student, I had the opportunity to go to, it wasn't a pro bono case, but it was a, a first-degree murder trial related to uh, a Philadelphia Mafia case. And uh, Luna Tully was an ex-Philadelphia defender, great trial lawyer. So in many ways, I was, I was very impressionable at Temple, and I certainly admired him and the pro bono work that he did as a professor. And that's kind of where it started. I just was, you know, wide-eyed with the kind of things that he would do. And so it was, it's definitely Luna Tully. And, and since then, I've seen some remarkable people at Cozen O'Connor that have done, done great work. So, you know, it's, it's always continued. Well, your work, I'm sure, has made him very proud. So, Hayes, thank you so much for talking with me today. It was fun, as talking with you always is. All right. Thanks, Rena. Thank you. Thank you so much to Hayes for making the time to be with us. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. And please take a moment to leave an iTunes review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback, and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. To learn more about PBI, you can find us on the web at probonoinst.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and suggestions to pro bono at probonoinst.org. 
Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.